Well, good morning and happy Memorial Day, everyone. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> it's like the old joke, I know you're out there, I can hear you breathing. Um, so, uh, in all seriousness, uh, I want to uh, begin uh, our, my pastoral prayer with uh, this word from the Apostle Paul in light of uh, Pastor John's call to worship this morning uh, in light of recent events. Uh, both in Texas and within the uh, SBC. The Apostle Paul writes these words uh, in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, verse 3, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So if we have, and some of you have been through seasons of affliction, you know the precious promise that this word offers. And so we would want to extend by our prayer uh, to those who are afflicted and are grieving the very comfort of the God who is the God of all comfort. So please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that your, Lord, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrated uh, this comfort that is available to us as we trust in you. He invited us who are weary and burdened to come to him and to find rest for our souls, to take his yoke uh, upon us, to find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, to find that he is uh, gentle and lowly of heart, that he is meek and humble, but he, he is also strong. He is our good and great shepherd who cares for his sheep, who lays down his life for his sheep. Father, there are families who are grieving in Uvalde, Texas. Father, who are struggling and perhaps will never be able to comprehend the immensity of the tragedy that has befallen them, the pain will run that deep. And so we pray, Father, you who know the depth of that pain. Your son has experienced the very pains of hell. And so I pray, Lord God, for whatever comfort can be afforded to those who are grieving, that it would be available to them through the ministry of your church there in Uvalde, through the Christians who are there, who are praying, as well as for other Christians around this nation. Father, we also want to pray for those victims of uh, abuse within the SBC. There is a history, Father, of not only abuse, but then of cover-up. We're victims who should have been treated with grace and honor and dignity. We're treated as enemies and threats to men of position and power of author and authority. And for this, Lord God, we repent. And we pray, especially, Father, as pastors, that you would keep us from such sins. That you would admonish us, Lord God, with all sternness, that we might be sound in faith and in practice. Father, we thank you that this wound has been exposed, that healing might happen. It may take time, it will take time, but, Father, now that this evil has been brought into the light. The truth can begin to kill the lie. And the healing can begin. We thank you for the power of your word, not only to expose darkness, but then also to hold out 
as our brother Randy has mentioned to us, that word of life that keeps us from stumbling, that allows us to stand firm and to find a place of comfort, of grace and mercy, of healing and recovery, and even of reconciliation, of forgiveness. We are mindful of the words of our Savior who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and yet, O Lord God, we know in their heart of hearts they were doing exactly what they were designed to do. And so we pray for your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, for your restoration. We pray for your comfort. We remember as well, Lord God, those who have died in battle. Not only those, Lord God, who were drafted or enrolled into the military service, but for the collateral damage that is done by war. For men and for women and for children who are victimized and killed and as well as for those service members who have paid the ultimate sacrifice, fighting more at times for the, the man next to them in the foxhole than even for their own nation. And we thank you for that kind of sacrifice. And now we thank you as well, Lord God, for the power of your word, for its ability to give us life and to give us health and to give us hope to give to us the very peace that we crave but often do not realize we need. And so we ask, O oh Lord God, that your spirit now, through your word, would speak words of encouragement, of hope, of healing, of joy, as we trust in you. Father, we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we begin our, our, we continue our series on life in the family of God, and we come uh, this week uh, to the aspect of being molded by the Word, and the text for this week's message is uh, going to come from 2 Timothy 3, and I'm going to read the, the fuller context of uh, verses 16 and 17, uh, that paragraph which begins in verse 10, Paul is encouraging his young mentee, um, Timothy, to uh, teach truth, to stand firm against those who are questioning him because of his youth, uh, as well as challenging uh, the teaching that he has given them. And so Paul writes, uh, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It, there's a, a handy little book uh, in my library. I have referred to it 
in an earlier set of messages on the, the books, the letters of John. The book is The Gospel Driven Church by Jared Wilson. And in the book, he defines the meaning of the title as follows. He says, a gospel-driven church is one that explicitly and intentionally connects its teaching, programs, ministry, philosophy, and mission to the content of the gospel. And that when every ministry of a local church is gospel-driven, its members will demonstrate the following characteristics. And he lists them. There are five of them. There's a growing esteem for Jesus Christ. There is a discernible spirit of repentance. There is an interest in theology and doctrine. There is an evident love for God and neighbor. And there is a single-minded devotion to the Word of God. And Wilson borrows these attributes, these characteristics, from a sermon that was preached by Jonathan Edwards, noting the fact that a, a gospel, as a gospel-driven church, such as we are here at MGC, the desire to demonstrate all of these characteristics really is the, the foundation and the driving force behind our, this current series on life in the family of God. In last week's message, we focused on the nature and the call of covenant. And in, in a very broad and very general sense, we covered the first four of these characteristics. And we dealt with them, like I said, in general terms. So today's message from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 concentrating on being molded by the Word and to be molded by the Word through the last of these characteristics, molded by the Word through a single-minded devotion to the Word of God, which is then the, the groundwork for the big idea of the sermon, which is Scripture is God's Word, and by it He informs, shapes, encourages, and nurtures His people individually and corporately. The reason why we want to be molded by the Word is that the more we are molded by the Word, the more we come to reflect the image and character of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we become to uh, be molded more and more into the image and character of God uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. So before moving on into the, into the body of the, the sermon, let's, let's be reminded of, of our church covenant, the one that we had just recently agreed on, because it really is the, the foundation for what we're doing here. So, having as we trust been brought by God's sovereign grace to repent from sin and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and having professed faith in Christ and having been baptized, we, members of Maranatha Grace Church, earnestly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other as we strive to grow in Christ together. Now, that covenant not only expresses our desire for every member that has committed to become a member of MGC, but it is really our goal and our desire for everyone who visits and who has been attending Maranatha for some time. So the intent of these messages in the most recent sprint is not to be exclusive, but to be as inclusive as possible by encouraging everyone who is here on Sunday to think seriously and consider seriously the blessings and benefits of committing fully to becoming a member of a local church, Maranatha Grace Church being one expression of that. So following that preamble in our, in our church covenant, there are several promises that are made that we have committed to keeping with one another. And the first promise that follows that preamble is this, that we will examine the scriptures corporately and privately, that we might grow in faith and speak God's truth to one another in love. 
That promise is in our covenant because one sign of a healthy church is one in which every member demonstrates a single-minded devotion to the Word of God. To read it, to study it, to memorize it, to practice it. We preach from the Bible, obviously, because we believe it to be the source of our spiritual growth. It's our spiritual food. It's, It's our bread and our wine. It's the thing that nourishes our soul and encourages our heart, transforms our mind. We study the Bible because we believe in it. God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And we obey the Bible because we're convinced that it is the God-given, Spirit-inspired, Christ-embodied, sufficient, powerful, and authoritative standard for faith and practice. That is our encouragement to anyone who walks through the doors and enters into this worship center. That you would make the Word of God the foundation for your life. That your single-minded devotion to it would inform and instruct everything you do. Because we believe that the Scripture is indeed the breathed-out Word of God. And as such, we are to be molded by it and not by culture. That we are to be molded by the Scripture, not by our personal preference. That we are to be molded by Scripture because Scripture is the very means by which God molds us into the image and likeness of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So once again, the big idea, Scripture is God's Word, and by it He informs, shapes, encourages, and nurtures His people individually and corporately. And in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul gives us three reasons why we need to demonstrate a single-minded devotion to the Word of God. He notes, first of all, there is the divine origin of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Then he talks about the usefulness of Scripture, how Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then he talks about the sufficiency of Scripture in that by learning from it, the man of God, the woman of God would be thoroughly equipped, able to do whatever is necessary to live out that word, to teach that word, to demonstrate that word. According to one commentator reading through 2 Timothy 3, when you come to verses 16 and 17, those verses, he says, are, are dropped like an anvil in the middle of Paul's conversation with Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. The context, however, of chapter 3, uh, verses 10 to 17, gives us the reason why Paul drops these words like an anvil into the context and the flow of his conversation. It goes back to what he said in verses 14 and 15. But as for you, he says, this is Timothy, you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the, the sacred writings that Paul is referring to here are the Old Testament. They were learned by Timothy from his grandmother Lois and from his mother Eunice, and just as likely from Paul, as Paul took him under his wing and mentored him. Knowing that Timothy is facing intense pressure from false teachers, knowing that Timothy is also facing 
the pressure of being a young man in ministry and thereby struggling with those who are looking down upon his youth, Paul drops these two verses, 16 and 17, like an anvil in his conversation to remind Timothy of the, and to emphasize to him the strength and the power and authority that, Timothy, you may be quaking in your boots, you may be shaking in your heart when you stand up to preach, but understand that you are preaching an all-authoritative, all-powerful, all-sufficient Word of God, and the power depends not on your, your courage, but on the power of the Word that you preach. So when you engage someone at work or in your neighborhood or across the kitchen table or at a family gathering with the word, it's not your bravery, it's not even your wittiness or intelligence that is the issue, it's what the word says. And we're called to engage people with the scripture. And Paul wants Timothy to have that same degree of confidence that you may not be able to say it in such an eloquent way as you would want, but if you are saying and teaching from the Word of God, the Word itself has power in it. It has light, it has truth, because it is light, and it is truth. And so he wants Timothy to be molded by the Word before he goes out to mold others with it, and to be molded by that single-minded devotion to its divine origin, its usefulness, and its sufficiency. Let's look at that. Let's look at the divine origin, the way Paul references it here. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Some other translations will say uh, all Scripture is, uh, breathed, um, um, is the breath of God or is inspired by God. God breathed or breathed out is a better uh, translation because by declaring Scripture to be breathed out by God, Paul is not referring to the method by which Scripture is inspired, but to its source. So that every word of Scripture originates in the mind of God and is communicated by His Spirit through human authors. Scripture's ultimate origin is God. It's His Word. Some have pointed out that this expression that Paul uses, breathed out by God, if you are a Greek nerd, Theopneustos, right? God breathed. That, some will point out that's the only time here in 2 Timothy, the only time this phrase appears in the Scripture. However, there is evidence within the New Testament that the authors of the New Testament believed that the words that they were writing were, in fact, God-breathed. And the words of the Old Testament were God-breathed as well. Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.21. He's talking about the Word of God. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't a matter. The Scripture wasn't composed by a bunch of guys who got together in a smoke-filled room somewhere after the Council of Constantinople and said, hey, let's get together and write a fantastic book. And while we're at it, let's, let's write it so that every, everyone that we would want to imitate in the, in the Bible is actually a person with feet of clay. That's not how you write a word that's going to be humanly inspired. The Word of God is, finds its origin in God, breathed out by His Spirit, communicated through human authors. 
How do we know this? Well, Peter says as much again in, in Acts um, 1.16. He's speaking in Acts 1.16 about Judas's betrayal of Jesus. When he stands up and he tells the other apostles, he says, brothers, because they're all sort of down in the dumps about what had happened and what do they do now. And he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. So he's attributing divine authorship to the Old Testament through David. Then again in Acts 4.25, immediately after Peter and John are released and they return to the disciples and they share what the high priests and the officials have told them. Luke tells us that all those who were gathered in that room lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm 2, verse 1. So the sacred scriptures that Paul refers to, of which he reminds Timothy, are the Old Testament inspired by God through the Holy Spirit. He also tells Timothy, they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Remember, too, that on the road to Emmaus, when the two disciples are encountered by Jesus and they are down in the dumps, they are depressed because they really thought Christ was the answer, the Messiah, and they are grieving his death and their hope is dashed. It's Jesus who says, don't you understand these things had to happen? And then Luke says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus explains to them everything about himself. So everything in the Old Testament is inspired by God to lead us to Christ. Everything in the New Testament is inspired by God, again, to exalt and to lead us to Christ. And in time, that phrase, all Scripture, came, not, came to include not only the writings of the Old Testament, but the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, the rest of the New Testament as well. There's even evidence that well before the New Testament is completed, Paul's writings were already being considered to be Scripture, breathed out, if you will. Bold statement. How can I say that? 2 Peter 3 is how I can say that. Because at the end of that second letter, Peter is encouraging faithful living among his readers, knowing that they are scattered around the world at that point, awaiting the time of Christ's return. Peter says, what kind of people ought you to be knowing that Jesus is going to return? He says, you need to be patient. You need to be patient like Jesus is patient. He tells them, and count the patience. This is verse 15 of 2 Peter 3. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Strong evidence. The Bible also tells us that God has chosen to reveal himself through nature in the things that have been made, as Paul says that in Romans 1, as well as through our own human moral awareness, our sense of right and wrong, 
is God's way of communicating to us through our conscience. And additionally, and more importantly, the Word of God is God's chosen method of communicating and revealing the way of salvation, redemption, and the forgiveness of sins. We learn about our own sinfulness and the path to redemption by listening to the Word of God. Remember in Acts 16, when Paul is preaching there, I think it's in Philippi, and he's by the river, and there are some people who are listening, and one of the people listening is a woman named Lydia. And Luke says that as Paul is preaching the gospel, he says the Holy Spirit opened her heart to receive the word. We sang about God plant your word in us. That's how he does it. The preaching of the word, the Spirit opens our heart plants the word of truth within, and then draws us irresistibly to the throne of grace where we might acknowledge our sin and confess faith in Christ as Savior. That special revelation, if you will, is a work of God the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word. I have a very good friend who lives in Beverly, Massachusetts, who uh, shortly after he and his wife gave birth to their first child, the child was born... Um, prematurely. And my friend was at his mother-in-law's house. His son was in the hospital, hooked up to all sorts of tubes, as you might imagine, in the neonatal unit. My friend, who grew up nominally uh, going to church, I think as a Catholic, saw a Bible sitting on the coffee table in his mother-in-law's home. And just the thought came to him, hmm, there's a Bible. Maybe I should read it. And as he read, the more he read, not just that day, but in subsequent days, the more he read, the more the Spirit opened his heart and he began to see who Jesus is, who he needs to be in Christ, and he was saved by reading the Word. There's power in that. Because it is divinely sourced. So how does the divine origin of Scripture help us to be molded by the Word? <coughs> it would be arrogant of me to, to give you an exhaustive list because there are volumes that are written on how this is done, but I'm going to give you at least four to get you started, all based on the Scripture. How does the divine origin of Scripture help us to be molded by the Word through a single-minded devotion to it? First of all, Understand that the Word is the source of our life. Deuteronomy 8.3. Moses is talking to the people of Israel before they cross over into Canaan. And he tells them, he's talking about how God provided for them all the time that they were in the wilderness. And then in this very famous passage which Jesus quotes when he is tempted, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives, how? By every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the Word is our life. It's what sustains us. It's what feeds us. And secondly, the Word is eternal. And therefore, it is eternally reliable when we trust in its promise to give eternal life through all those who trust in Christ. It's eternally reliable. Isaiah 40, verse 8. I remember the very first Bible I bought was a New American Standard Bible uh, it was a paperback because they didn't want to spend the big money for a hardback. I was a young Christian. What did I know? But I remember it was, it was the Lockman Foundation that published it. And the very first page, it had Isaiah 40, verse 8. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will last forever. It endures. It's eternally reliable. And thirdly, the word guides us through life, especially in those darker moments when it feels as though God has abandoned us. We see this. This is the the power of the word in lament. In a positive way, Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So when we cannot find our way, when things around us are dark, the word is the light that helps us find our way back to God, that helps find our way back to the truth, find our way back to health and to wholeness spiritually so that we can thank him, praise him, worship him, serve him. It may take time, but the light of the word begins to dawn on us. And I, I love the, another uh, scripture, it's not included, but I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you. It's one of my favorite scriptures that Paul writes. It's in 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, Paul is talking about the revelation of God, and he writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I'll read that again. Just to... The superlatives that he builds there, this is just uniquely Paul. For God who said that light shine out of darkness. There's the creative power of God's word as well. Right? Go back to Genesis 1. I, I could have used that one as well. It's the power of God's word to create. We have been created by the word of God. And so the, 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 the word of God who says let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts simply by his grace to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I think it's Ray Orton who said, you stare at the glory of Christ until you see it. I think when Andrew Matheson was here, he said the same thing when he preached a Revelation 1. Stare at Jesus. Stare at the Word until you see it. Until you see that glory. Until you experience that glory. Until you taste it. Because it's meant to be experienced. It's meant to be known and interacted with intellectually for sure. But there's also that moment when you just, it just grabs you by the heart. And it pulls you into it. I long for you to have that kind of experience with the word. When you're in a season of lament, or when you're in a season of confusion, or when you're in a season of just absolute boredom, and you open your Bible, it seems like for the thousandth time, and it, nothing's happening, and then suddenly, flint strikes steel, and there's a spark. And it's like, oh! Water to a thirsty soul. Food to a starving heart. Light to a darkened and darkening mind. That's what it is to have a single-minded devotion to the Word of God. And lastly, lest I forget, I knew where I was. The Word is our primary weapon in spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6.17, the culmination of all of the weaponry and armor that Paul talks about. He says, take the helmet of salvation... Which guards the mind, informs the mind, informs the intellect. And the sword of the Spirit, he says, which is the word of God. You think of when Jesus did battle with the enemy in his temptation. How did he confront Satan? How did he rebuke and refute Satan's temptations? With the word. It's our chief weapon in spiritual warfare. And understand, we don't like... Those terms, we, we, we are, uh, I think, at a time in our culture where we don't like words like warfare and battle. And yet the scriptures are filled with imagery that reminds us we're in a war. 
not with humanity, but with an enemy of our soul who would delight in nothing more than to leading us back into the darkness or in what appears to be light, but is only shadow. So <clears throat> the, the, the divine origin of scripture reminds us that the word is our life, it is our light, it's eternally reliable, and it is our chief weapon in spiritual warfare. The usefulness of Scripture, Paul says, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Because all Scripture is, is breathed out by God, it's therefore true. And because all Scripture is true, it is useful, or it's profitable, as Paul says. The Bible is not, as I said earlier, not a, a collection of works by human authors. It's, in fact, it's a library of books all breathed out by God himself, written so that the Bible is God's breathed out word, written, as Paul says in Romans 15, written for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's Romans 15.4. So you see this element of, of divine authority, if you will, the scriptures and human responsibility. Because it's endurance and encouragement that is received through the scripture. By continually going back to the word is how God encourages us. And Paul lists four ways that the scripture can mold us into the image and likeness of Jesus. Continue to, if you will, build and encourage this single-minded devotion to the word. And he does it, it's not an exhaustive list. The four things that he lists are not an exhaustive list, but they are at least a list to get you started. Right? Scripture is useful for teaching. Teaching what? <laughs> well, te teaching certainly the fundamentals of the faith. Remember, Timothy learned everything he needed to learn about how to be saved through faith in Christ through the Old Testament. So he learned his basic ABCs. He learned about God's authority. He learned about the inspiration of Scripture. He learned about doctrine. He learned theology. He learned about the innate sinfulness of the human heart. Scripture is profitable for teaching those things. And parents, pastors, and Bible teachers must feed their heart, their mind, and their soul on the Bible before they teach it to others. In context, remember, Paul is reminding Timothy that his primary responsibility as the pastor of the church that he's overseeing is to know the Scripture and then use it to provide sound instruction in the gospel to his congregation. And there are at least then two things that are required in order to be able to use the scriptures properly for teaching. One is, it should be obvious. You have to be born again. You have to have a relationship with Christ through faith in order to be able to understand the scriptures and then teach it. And then secondly, you have to be molded by the word first before you go out and attempt to mold others by it. Teaching the Bible is not a matter of do as I say, don't do as I do. Teaching the Bible is very much a matter of do as I say and do as I do, as I seek to follow Christ. So parents, we set that example for our children. Pastors, we set that example for our congregation. You go to work, you're dealing with people perhaps that aren't, in relationship with Christ? Your life is a way of teaching. Your life is a way of instructing them in terms of how are you molded. 
And so it's, it takes wisdom, it takes courage, it takes guidance and insight. We have included in our own statement of faith here at Maranatha what we believe about the Bible and why we believe it's important to believe the Bible. And just bear with me, I'll just read it so we just get a grounding. Once again, this is a way of reminding. This is from our statement of faith. Summarized, I didn't include the whole thing. So we accept the Bible, including the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament, as the written word of God. The Bible is an essential and infallible record of God's self-disclosure to mankind. It leads us to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The scriptures are the authoritative and normative rule and guide for Christian life, practice, and doctrine. They are totally sufficient and must not be added to, superseded, or changed by later tradition, extra-biblical revelation, or worldly wisdom. Every doctrinal formulation, whether of creed, confession, or theology, must be put to, t uh, must be put to the test of the full counsel of God in Holy Scripture. So the Bible is our authority for everything pertaining to life and godliness. So it's useful for teaching. It's also useful for reproof. This is the other side of the coin of teaching. Because teaching requires us to uh, give sound instruction. Reproof requires us to expose teaching that is unsound, as well as those who are teaching unsound things. Reproof is how you go about showing a person who is teaching error how, where, and why they have wandered from the truth. Paul uses this very same word, reproof, in Titus 1.13. He instructs Titus, um, who is also a young pastor, dealing with some unruly fellows in his church. He says, I want you to rebuke them sharply, rebuke, rebuke false teachers sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. That sounds harsh, and it's meant to be only for this reason, that those who need reproof for teaching bad theology need to be shown that their bad theology is creating in them an unhealthy spirit and will essentially infect the rest of the body. So it has to be dealt with in a very sharp way. We see this in Paul's own ministry, if you read Galatians 2 and read there where Paul confronts Peter publicly about Peter's behavior, where when the Jews would come from Jerusalem, Peter, who had formerly been eating with the Gentiles and having no problem with that, suddenly when the Jews came down from Jerusalem, the Christians there, Peter would excuse himself from the Gentiles and eat only with the Jews and ignore the very same people he had having a meal with before. And Paul says, what are you doing? You can't do that. He is so livid at Peter, he even threatens Peter with the loss of his own salvation because of his behavior. So the, the idea and the goal of reproof is not to punish. It's not to be vindictive. It's to restore. It's to reconcile. It's to straighten out. The problem, of course, is we live now in a very hypersensitive culture where words like reproof are viewed as weapons. And so practicing reproof, particularly in a church context, is risky business. But being molded by the word means lovingly confronting a brother or sister who is in error 
as well as teaching error. It also means responding positively when you are reproved by a brother or sister. Because to reprove someone, that's a daunting responsibility. Parents do this all the time, right? We have no qualm, if you will, reproving our children. Don't hit your brother. Right? Don't throw food at the table. Right? Watch your language. We reprove our children, we reprove one another by reminding one another of what it means to practice the truth. To reprove someone, as I said, is a daunting obligation. But to, so to do it well, we must rely on the Bible and its authority uh, to carry out this very necessary and important responsibility. So we never reprove on the basis of preference. We never reprove on the basis of opinion. It's, this is what the scripture says. This is where you're falling short. How can we help you get back on the path of doing what the scripture says is true? It's not, I don't like that, because that's not the way I would do it. That's not reproof in a biblical sense. So scripture is useful for that. Scripture is also useful for correction. It's similar to reproof is correction, but reproof deals with behavior Correction, uh, uh, reproof rather deals with bad teaching. Correction deals with bad behavior, which may be the result of bad teaching. The goal of correction is improvement through education. It could simply be you don't know what was the right thing to do. Well, let me show you how. This is what it looks like. The goal of correction is, much, is very similar to reproof. It's restoration, it's reconciliation, it's recovery. Uh, it's telling someone. So if you think about it, if reproof, if you're hiking, um, as Jill and I have been doing, reproof is, is telling someone, you've gone off the trail. Correction is showing them what the proper trail is. So reproof gets half the job done. You're off mark. Correction is saying, this is the way you should walk. I've used this illustration before that whenever you know, Jill and I are hiking, we have an app, and it's connected to our, our watch. And if we go off trail, my watch will start buzzing. And it'll be a little message. And it'll be like, off route? Question mark. And it'll show me on the map where I've gone off route and where I can get back on the trail. Correction is like that. The scripture is useful for that. Uh, scripture is also useful for training in righteousness. Um, it's, this is learning how to live a life that's pleasing to God. Scripture is a primary resource for teaching the habits and practices that will reflect God's own character, his righteousness in relationship with his people. If I can illustrate this. When uh, my brother and I, maybe you parents have done this as well, when my, parent, when my uh, parents would take us to um, my aunt's apartment, my aunt, her, her aunt Daphne. Lots of little statues in Aunt Daphne's house, which were very fascinating for little boys to sort of pick up. And on the way, or even before we left the house, we would get the speech right, about don't touch anything. Right? If you ask for something, play, say please. When you receive something, say thank you. So we would get all of these instructions. Why? Because they didn't want us to act like little barbarians and just storm in there and break things, jump on furniture. You can do that at home because no one sees you. But when you're out and about, 
You behave like this. That's training for righteousness. The scripture trains us. It's like, so when you think of Jesus, when he's reviled, he didn't revile back. When he was slandered, he didn't slander back. He took it. And, he, and, and Paul talked about this when we went through this in Ephesians 4. It's learning how to speak the truth in love. So that our reaction when we are being reproved or are being corrected or when we have conflict isn't, right? Oh, yeah? And then you're sort of, it's like almost arms down. I, didn't, I wasn't aware. How can I make it right? What can I do to be better at that? It, it's that kind of openness and vulnerability. So Paul is stressing that. And then the, the last part of it, all of this flows into the sufficiency of Scripture, that the man of God, he says, may be equipped for every good work. And, and Paul really just asserts here the outcome of all of those things, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The outcome of Scripture's divine author, origin and, and usefulness has this effect, that you will be thoroughly equipped, able to meet all the demands of life and ministry, and to rise to meet whatever challenge life will throw at you. And by every good work, certainly Paul means not only Christian behavior, but the ministry of the word. And so he wants Timothy to be equipped. That's how we are equipped through a single-minded devotion uh, to the word of God. Without wanting or intending to sound crass, the Bible, in in other words, is kind of like a Swiss army knife. It has all of these little tools, big tools as well, that are very helpful. It's it's like a a Holy Spirit-empowered multi-tool. Because there's no occasion that it doesn't address, no need it doesn't speak to, no problem it cannot help us navigate to an answer. All through a single-minded devotion. Toward the uh, latter part of the 19th century, there was a young man who was a pharmacist, a chemist in Brooklyn, New York. And like most young men of that era, um, wanting to make a fortune, had just heard about the discovery of oil in Pennsylvania. So he bought a ticket, went out to his little town in Pennsylvania to observe work on an oil well. And he noticed that as the the workers were operating this well, they would take these drills out of the earth, and there was this black goo on the oil rig itself, and they would scrape this goo off, and then they would just put it in the bucket. And he asked the worker there, what is that stuff that, he said, well, they they called it rod wax. And he said, really, just, if we don't scrape it off, it just gums up the machinery and just makes everything a mess. He said, but you know, the interesting thing is, a couple of the guys, if they've gotten burned or or injured or cut somehow, they take that goo, they put it on, and I mean, it's amazing. It it heals incredibly fast. The young chemist got this idea. This is his ticket to fortune. So he asked for a bucket of the big black goo, and and he took it back to his chemist shop in Brooklyn, and he began to refine it over a process of 10 years. Until, and then he, he got it to the point where it actually was this clear jelly. But in order to convince other chemists in the area to buy it, he had to first prove to them that it worked. So he spent hours, days, and weeks cutting himself, burning himself with chemicals. 
and then putting this grease on it, which you know is Vaseline. Robert Chesbro had a single-minded devotion to an idea, and he kept at it until he achieved success. We have a single-minded devotion to the Word of God. Our goal is to be successful in imitating Christ, following Him, witnessing for Him, giving glory to Him, to be molded by His Word that we might reflect His glory. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the power of Your Word, that it is indeed... God-breathed, eternally reliable, that it is sufficient for all our needs. And so we pray, Lord God, that we would be molded by your word through our study of it and our obedience to it, and that we would, in doing so, be inspired to share it. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.